Let's, uh, let's get into our Bibles, digital, paper, whatever. Um, find it. Let's get to James chapter 2. We're going to finish James chapter 2 today. Uh, now, a bit of a reminder, uh, the last two weeks, James has been teaching us that there is a, a false profession of faith, which is identified with, with this absence of, of good works, uh, a complete lack of, of obedience to God. James says that 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 faith that he's talking about, that empty profession of faith, that faith won't save you. That sort of false faith is, is not a, a work of, of God-given redemption in, in your heart. It's just empty words. And, and James then illustrates this with these four case studies, kind of maybe five, I guess, because I kind of broke the last verse off today as a fifth one. But uh, our, our first two examples that we saw were, uh, were from the negative perspective. And by that I mean he's, he's focusing on here's what his false faith looks like. When you see it, this is what it looks like. And the first we saw that the false faith sees a brother or a sister who's in need, they're hungry, they're cold, they're, they're under uh, taken care of with food, and, and despite being able to, does not actually help them, does not provide for them. And then last week we saw the second example, this, that, that false faith is, is merely intellectual, it is, it is just theological knowledge of God, and, and his whole point was even the demons believe, even they have these right ideas, these right theologies about God. Today, we're going to see it again, uh, you know, we're going to be seeing the same idea again, and we're going to see it from the positive perspective. James is going to switch it around. Uh, as, as we look at Abraham and, and Rahab, these are our, our main case studies today. Uh, in short, today we, we further learn that the relationship between genuine faith and good works cannot be divided. Right? And we're gonna, the order of those things is very important. We'll see that later. But, but they cannot be divided. So let's, let's read beginning in James 2, uh, verse 20. Which puts you right after the first sentence there. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we finish up this portion of James today, I ask that you would would make all of your people, your, your children who hear this, to understand the work of justification that you have sovereignly accomplished and applied to our souls. Give us a good and, and biblically solid understanding then of how that justification grows into the fruit of godly works done joyfully in the strength of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Jesus, our Lord, in Matthew 25, he tells of a time... When, when God is going to divide people into these two groups, there's a, a symbolism there, right? The, the goats and, and the sheep, and I'm not labeling you that way, but the goats and the sheep, the, the goats represent the, the unredeemed, while the, the sheep represent those who are redeemed, those who have genuine saving faith in, in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> That's a future event, okay, is what he's pointing to. James, though, 
a, a bit of a, a spoiler, if you will. He, he wants to teach us how to know which, which group our soul belongs to now. And this is not so you can look at the world and figure out who the elect are or anything like that, right? But so that we can evaluate ourselves and, and, and see some aspect of that uh, to which one we belong to. So that, that God willing, really, God willing is that you and I will take serious the call of Jesus on our lives. That's something incredibly important. And, and if you've been with us the last two weeks, you know that he's actually about halfway through with his explanation point. Uh, and, and at this point, there is some sense in James here that, that his readers should really be understanding what he said so far. I've been real clear. I've shown this. And maybe you're thinking the same thing. Like, why did you break this into so many sermons? We got it, you know, two weeks ago. Um, and, and at this point, though, he's saying, you know, if you, if you don't understand, it's, there's something about you that you're foolish. And, and, and don't, don't hear this wrong. He's not saying it like we tend to use the word, right? You're, you're stupid. You're, you're ignorant. That kind of thing. Rather, James is actually making a, a moral judgment here. This is a foolish in the sense of, in the Proverbs, right? The foolish one who, who doesn't believe in the Lord, who doesn't follow the Lord, who doesn't understand the things of the Lord. And, and we hear that in verse 20, right? Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that a faith apart from, fa- faith, apart from works, uh, that faith apart from works is useless? In, in other words, he's going to show us from Scripture the indelible relationship be- between God-given faith and God-given good works. And that, you know, launches us, and then he launches into Exhibit A. And I wanted to read this again. Just, I know we just read it, but, right? I'm going to read it again anyway. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac at the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, I know some of you know the story of Abraham, but let's just go over that real quick. Abraham and his wife had, had no children. They desired children, but they did not have them. And um, they had actually kind of resolved at this point that they, you know, the time to have children was, was long gone and wasn't going to happen. After all, uh, Abe was 75 years old and she was 65 years old. Uh, if you put it in some perspective, the, the, the life expectancy was longer then, closer to 120, but it'd be like your grandma having a baby today. Um, so then, in Genesis 15, in, in a vision, God speaks with Abraham, and, and he tells him, I'm going to give you a son, right? Despite everything you think, you're going to still have a child. And then God says, Abraham, go outside. I want you to, to look up at the stars in the sky. Just, just look at them. Try to number them. Your descendants shall be as many as those stars that you see. And having grown up in Houston, to be honest, when I first read that, I wasn't real impressed with that. Like, so like, four Four descendants? Is that what we're talking about? No. This is before light pollution. If you've ever been out in one of those places where there is no other thing and you look up and you are just blown away by the amount of stars you see in the sky, that's what he's looking at. There's going to be so many descendants that he couldn't possibly number them. And then in the very next verse, Genesis 15, 6, we we read this. "And, And Abraham believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. That that was the moment right there. That, that's the moment that Abraham has genuine faith. Genuine faith that God is going to do exactly what he says he's going to do. Now, many years pass. <clears throat> Abraham was old. Now he's super old. Uh, he's 100 years old. His, his wife, Sarah, is 90 years old. Uh, and this is the time actually gives birth to Isaac. Uh, and, and you see, long before Father Abraham had many sons, he, he had just one son. He had just Isaac. 
And through this one child, through Isaac, this covenant child, right, through the only one, his descendants were to become a great nation. They were to become an incredibly great blessing to the nations as well, which is, is talking about our, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's going to be descended in this line. And, and you begin to get this idea then, it's, it's very important then that, that Isaac be alive so that he can have children. It, it, it's going to be necessary, it seems, right, if, if, if God is going to keep this covenant promise that he has made to Abraham. It's, it's, to make, it's a lot like, well, like, you know, reigning champ over here, Alex, right? He had Duke winning his bracket, uh, but if you didn't pay attention, Duke got eliminated yesterday. So now there's this broken line. Duke cannot possibly win it at this point. It cannot continue on. The line was severed. That's, that's the thought that's going on here as we get to Genesis 22. Uh, imagine the dilemma that he is facing when God says in Genesis 22:2, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The command of God here, what he's saying is, is go and build an altar, bind your son on that altar, kill him with the knife, and then burn his body as an offering to me. I shouldn't have to say this, but if anyone ever tells you to do that, the correct answer is, yeah, no, no. Uh, but this is the Lord God Almighty talking to him. And, and so remember, right, we, we, we were told that Abraham believed God years before. Back in Genesis 15, 6, he believed God. Not just that Isaac would be born, but through him would be the descendants that, that number like the stars that he looked up on on that night. Now, y'all are smart. Y'all know if Abe sacrifices his boy, he can't possibly, this can't possibly happen. The, the promise God made can't be real. And, and, and so does Abraham genuinely believe God will make it happen? Does he still believe it even now, even as God is asking him to do this thing? Even if he obeys God here, does he think it can happen? And, and you and I don't have to wonder. We know, don't we? He does. Abraham believes God will keep his promise even in the midst of this unfathomable command to sacrifice Isaac. And to James's point, you and I can see that his faith is real. Simply by the actions that follow. He takes Isaac, his son, his only son, and he builds the altar and he binds him and he, he, he grasps the knife and he's ready to make the sacrifice. One of the questions people wonder is, how did, how did Abe think that God was going to actually fulfill this? Is he, did he think he was going to resurrect Isaac afterwards? Did he, did he think that, I don't know, the knife was just going to go through him? Did he think that there'd be an, another child given? What, what, what is it? I mean, the most biblically accurate answer to that question is, I don't know. You don't know, and we don't know. Regardless, though, what we do know is what ends up happening. He goes to do it, and an angel of the Lord stops Abraham from going through with it. And God provides a, a substitute. There's a ram caught over in the bushes, and that becomes his, his substitute sacrifice. But in Genesis 22:12, God says to Abraham, Now I know you fear God. The, the genuine faith of Abraham that is credited to him back in Genesis 15:6. Before he did any good work, before he accomplished anything, before he showed any obedience even, becomes observable in Genesis 22 when Abraham actually obeys God. Those actions prove what's, what's true in his heart, what's true of his faith. We, we see it in his obedience. Now, now, now you see, that's why James follows up the story of Abraham uh, uh, by beginning verse 22 with that, that phrase. You, you see, right? Um, 
And I don't know if you noticed, but that's what I began that last statement with, because that's usually how we begin that. You, you see that, and then you go on with some sort of explanation. Uh, that's how we do it, that, that use it as this meaningless prefix to the beginning of a sentence to introduce something. But, but James means it literally, like, like you see that I spilled coffee on my shirt because there's coffee on my shirt. There's not. But uh, that kind of see it, visible, observable. And so he, he says in verse 22 that you can actually see that faith was active along with Abraham's work and faith was completed by his work. Right? Completed in the sense of that's, that's what faith produces. That's what the, the, the clear and obvious response of, of true faith is. Now you and I know that in God's court you are justified the moment you believe. The works that we're seeing here are simply, simply show that you really do believe. They don't earn anything. They don't accomplish anything. You can't conjure them up. But, but they, they show that. I uh, recently read a story about the Olympic archer, Daryl Pace. Anyone ever heard of Daryl Pace? Not a one. Okay, so this will be a fun story for all of you. Uh, some years ago, all the news stations gathered in New York's Central Park uh, because he was doing this demonstration. He was just showing all these shooting arrows things, and uh, he's doing it with these steel-tipped arrows, steel-tipped arrows, uh, and, and just hitting these bullseyes over and over, and eventually he asked, hey, I need a volunteer. And he tells him, listen, I just need a ball. All you have to do is take an apple, this apple, and you're just going to hold it waist high out like this. And then I'm going to shoot an arrow right through it. No big deal. Uh, eventually, after great silence, this, this one guy, Josh Haller, reporter for ABC, says, I'll, I'll do it. Uh, and he takes the apple and he puts it out at, at waist high. The, the archer goes back about 30 yards. I don't even know how to estimate how far that is. Maybe where Adam's sitting, maybe further. I don't know why I'm telling you that if I don't know that. Anyway, he fires this arrow, and it goes right through the apple and just explodes it. Uh, one of my favorite things about the story, though, is that his cameraman right there goes, immediately goes, I didn't get it. Can we do it again? He, he got it. Uh, my, my point here, though, is that, that many people who gathered on that day believed that, that Pace, the archer, could shoot the apple instead of their hand. They, they believed it. But how many's faith could you and I actually see standing there? How many of them, you know, was it shown forth in, in, in the way they acted? But just the one, just, just, just Hal, who actually held the apple. And, and, and so then, in, in verse 24, James makes a statement that on, on first read, as, as Reformed folks, as evangelicals, as Christians in general, probably make you squirm a little, right? He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That doesn't sound right, does it? Something seems off there. Now, I, I won't explain this first part again, but, but do notice that the phrase at the start, right, you see, uh, you observe there at the start, and, and then the rest of this is really what makes us squirm, because verse 24 sounds absolutely contradictory to what the Apostle Paul says in a number of occasions, but particularly in Romans 3.28, where he says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And because faith alone is one of the great Solas of the Reformation, right? Sola fide, faith alone. Remember, James and Paul are, are using this term justification a little differently. And the reason is that they're, they're addressing two different concerns here. They don't contradict each other. The guys know each other. Uh, you know, he's totally aware of that. Paul, though, is, is addressing the person who believes that he, want, he must first keep the law and then become a Christian. That they must be circumcised or they've got to abstain from eating 
shellfish or bacon, right, or shrimp-wrapped bacon especially. Uh, to, to modernize this a little, because we don't think in those terms, uh, that the person who thinks to be accepted by God, maybe they have to go into vocational ministry, or they have to become a missionary, they have to first be baptized, and then you can believe, or, or at first you have to get your life together, right, and then you can believe, that, that kind of, then you can trust in Jesus. James, on the other hand, is, is addressing the person um, that says something like, I've prayed the prayer, I've professed the faith, but none of that really matters. None of that affects my life in any way and I don't care. I, I can go live my life any way I want because I have simply said those words and agreed to those statements. Uh, the, the idea that because I, am, I, am, I, I affirm God intellectually, all that matters, that's it. You might be, you know, you, you might say James is speaking in, in some sense to the person who grew up with this biblically sound theology and, and yet has never really taken possession, uh, claimed the faith in, in Jesus personally. And, and James's point here is this, that, that our glorious doctrine that justification is by faith alone is absolutely true. Praise the Lord. But that true justifying faith gives birth to justifying works of obedience in every heart where it is found. And so, yes, Abraham was, was justified before he was circumcised. He was justified before his attempted sacrifice of Isaac. And again, the, the, the chronology of the order of the events, they, they matter immensely. He, he had faith before his works came to light, and his works came to light because he had genuine faith. Now, our, our doctrinal statement, the Westminster Confession of Faith, it, it addresses this relationship between faith and works in chapter 11, uh, section 2, which says this. I'm going to read it slowly because it's a little older language. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet, it is not alone in the person justified but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. And so then James's second case study, you forget there's another one, right? Couldn't be more different than the first case study because here's Abraham, right? Abraham's a Jewish man. Rahab is a Gentile woman. Abraham was incredibly wealthy. Rahab was poor. Abraham was a well-respected and godly patriarch among the people. Rahab was a foreigner and a dishonorable prostitute. Abraham would have been received so incredibly well, right? Here's my example. Let me show you through Abraham, who you all respect, who you all like, and, and, and it, it goes so well, so why in the world does he come back and, and use Rahab as an example? Right? Why make that same point? Here's why. Precisely because she is in so many ways unlike Abraham. And yet, spiritually speaking, what God's doing in her heart and her life, right? Rahab is just like Abraham. Look at verse 25. James says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Again, you, you remember her history. It's from Joshua chapter 2. After God delivered the, the Israelites from, from Egypt, he gave them a few gap years to wander around the wilderness. 
And after 40 years out there, they, they finally come to the land of Canaan and with these instructions. You go in and you conquer it. And, and so Joshua, you know, wants to know what we're, what we're up against. He sends in these two spies. Go find out what's happening in there and come back and let us know. And these spies, they, they go to Jericho and, and not the wrestler, but the city. And they go to Jericho and, and they, they enter Rahab's house. And someone must have told the king about this because he, he sends a message to Rahab saying, you know, give us the spies, send them out, bring them back. And, and well, instead of giving up the spies, she, she hides them on her roof and, and, and says to the king's messengers, uh, yeah, there were some guys here. They, they came in. I didn't know they were spies. Uh, and they left already. And I don't know where they went, but it wasn't very long ago. So if you hurry, you can probably catch up to them and, and catch them, right? Here's Rahab. She's, she's lying. That's what she's doing. And, and so while they go running off after nothing, Rahab goes to the spies up on the roof. And, and she says this. This is in Joshua 2.9. And, and listen to her motive, her actions. Listen to what's being confessed even in her words. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to uh, Sion and Og, Og uh, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Now listen to her words here. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. We're hearing a, a profession of faith there. And, and by a lot of our, our normal standards, right, it's not as explicit as maybe we, we'd like to hear it. But, but her faith in God is seen so incredibly clear in, in her actions. She, she believes that God will, will give the city to God's people, that they are going to conquer that. And, and she acted upon that. Her, her allegiance, we see here, is, is to God. It's, it's to God and his, his covenant people, not, not to her city and their old gods. And, and after all that, as further observable faith, right, to, to, to at great risk to herself, she actually helps them escape by letting them down on this, this, this rope from her window to, to go on their way. Now Rahab does not have a great history of godliness. That's not what's leading up to this moment. And she does not earn salvation by these, these actions right here by any means. But, but these actions are, are, are the fruit of a genuine faith that God has done in her life and in her heart right then. Right? That despite her history, she has become a God-fearing woman. It's one of those things where it's almost a shame that we still know her as Rahab the prostitute or right? Thomas the doubter. Tim's always... He's not the daughter, right? Anyway, uh, you know, this is, this is Rahab. She's listed in Matthew 1.5 and in, in the lineage of Jesus. She's also listed in Hebrews 11.31. If you're familiar, right, that's the, the, the great faith chapter, all the heroes of the faith. And there's Rahab, the prostitute, or Rahab, the faithful, God-fearing woman, right? Uh, Rahab was, was saved by grace through faith alone. But like all faith, her faith was not alone, even in those early moments, it showed itself through the, the fruit of, of good works. And this, this brings us to our, our final verse of James. It comes, right? He comes to his conclusion and he says this. You can see it there, I think verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If you've ever been to a funeral of an open casket, you've likely seen a dead body. You've seen someone laying in a casket and the undertaker, right, using makeup, does the best they can to make the deceased look like they're just taking a nap, like they're just laying there. And yet, if you've seen this, you know, you just know something is off, something is not 
right here, you can just tell when the soul of a man has, has left him. And James here is, is, is making this analogy that, that anyone who, who just claims faith, just says the words, right, but has no works, no obedience to God, that, that person is not alive in Christ. They are, they're dead in their sin. That, that's where they're at. I don't know if this illustration works, but I'm going to try it anyway. <clears throat> Last fall, I picked up this huge burr oak acorn. They're massive. They're in our yard. And I thought, I'm going to become whatever the person who grows trees are called. And I planted it into a cup with this nice dirt, and I put it in the window, and I waited for the thing to grow. And months and months go by, and the thing, nothing happens. And then eventually one day I look over there, and there's this sprout. There's clearly green life coming out of it, and it takes me about three seconds to realize that I have been done in by my youngest child, uh, who had taken a bean plant, went to all the effort, planted a bean plant in her room, watered it until it became this nice little sprout, and then stuck it in there because she knows I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for this thing to come to life. <clears throat> now, I didn't pluck it out. I was like, all right, this thing's alive. Let's just grow this thing. And so we now have in our, our kitchen this bean plant that actually has pods on it that are, are, are showing fruit. But, but this contrast between the two things, this acorn, it's just kind of crumbled up into nothing at this point. And, and this bean plant, one is showing clear life and fruitfulness and it's alive. And the other one's just this, this dead thing that came off of a tree at this point. And, and just seeing those two, it, it becomes incredibly observable, though, of one of these is alive and the other one is dead. One, one of these are actually producing fruit, right? There's a, a few pods. We're going to feast one day. Uh, and, and the other one's not at all. That, that's what we're kind of seeing here. And James's point, then, is clear, right? And uh, unless your faith is lived out, is, is fruitfully observable and be, obedient, it, it's not real. It's no more alive than, than just a dead body, as David Gibson puts it, he says, divorce body and spirit and you have a corpse on your hand. Divorce faith and works and you have another corpse on your hands. A dead faith was never alive. And, and so this passage pulls on us, doesn't it? I, I think if you take it serious, it, it kind of draws you in into the self-examination and it's uncomfortable if you, if you actually consider it. You, you ask these questions, you know, what is my faith like? Do I have good works? Is my hope, is my trust, is my love for God, are, are they observable by good works or not? Is, you know, can I convince the person next to me that I'm a believer? Is, is my love for my neighbor, is my commitment to, to Jesus as, as truly my Lord, is this, is this active in my life? Do I have a living faith? And I, I know many of you go that way. In this room, I know that we tend to respond to this in two different ways. And, and some of you have tender consciences. You instantly see your faults and your deficiencies when you hear this. And listen, a tender conscience, that is a good thing. It is a gift of the Lord. It is a blessing. Truly it is. But one of the side effects of that it, that can be a danger is, is this idea that you begin to just focus on all your deficiencies. You start thinking, I could be doing more good works. I don't do enough. I totally ignored my neighbor that day or whatever it might be. And, and, and the shame here, not the shame, but the, the thing I, I want to warn you about here is that you're probably missing all the ways that your God-given faith, living faith, is actually working in your life, the observable faith uh, that expresses genuine faith. You're just missing it as you focus in on these other things. And in other words, while, while James's point should be encouraging you in the way that the Holy Spirit is working your life, you might actually be discouraged by this. Don't be. To, to you with tender consciences, I, I ask you to self-reflect but do so generously, do so mercifully, like our Father in Heaven would do. 
Don't, don't rob the glory of God for the work that is happening in your life by focusing on things where it's just not enough. Now, I also know in this room are those that are less tender in conscience. You, you, you just, like those of you who are, you know, and in the way that some of you are tender and you might overlook the genuine good works of, of God in your life, there are also some of you that are so naturally confident and won't even consider these things that you might overlook areas of genuine concern. And if that's you, like the person that, that James is addressing, right, the person who cares little of sanctification, the person who, who trusts in their theological rightness alone, right, in, in their history of being involved in the church or ministry or something like that, to, to you, and this is not a condemnation, but to you, I ask that you, that you take serious James's warnings here. Ask the Lord to give life to your faith, to soften your, your heart, to, to care for others, right? To obey God and, and even in the hard things, even the things you might not understand. Even in those sacrifices that you don't want to make. And, and, and as a point of, of vulnerable application here, let me encourage you this. One of the means that we better understand uh, where you are is, is, is the, where you are in life in a lot of ways, right? Is, is the way that your fellow believers, those around you, brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, are placed among you and, and the way that they can speak into your life. The, those who know you well and will be honest with you. And I, I say this, consider asking someone in that category that you trust to say, hey, in what ways do you see the outworking of genuine faith in my life? And as a side note, don't volunteer this information to anyone you feel like telling this to. Right? That, that's not what we're talking about. I, I, don't, I don't want you doing that. I don't want to hear any of you standing at the door today. Just, your faith is alive. Your sheep, go that way. You're a goat, go that way. None of that, right? This is not it. But, but someone you trust, and if someone has asked you, right, speak to them and, and be honest at that point. And if after evaluating your faith on either side, you know, tender or not, if you conclude that your faith is dead, don't, don't be broken by that. that. That can be a really good thing. Or don't be discouraged by that, rather. It can be a real blessing in your life. After all, that's, that's actually James's intention here, right? To expose any false faith so that we don't just sit in it and be comfortable there. If that's you, begin to pray to God about it. Confess that false faith and ask for true faith. For, for, for God is merciful and He is generous to, to all who call out to Him. And be encouraged because... Asking for faith is itself an initial sign of God giving true faith. And finally, I, I, I want to close with these words from 1 John 2.3. And if I'm honest, it's because I was trying to figure out where they went in the sermon. And I never figured it out. So we're going to end with them. 1 John 2.3 says this. By this we know that we have come to know God if we keep His commandments. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, Father, Make our anxious, our striving hearts to rest in the justification that you alone have accomplished and applied to our souls. And set our hearts free to run into the way of life that you have called us to. A life of joyful obedience to your word. A, a life of loving you with all of our hearts and, and loving our neighbors as ourselves by, by meeting their needs and by telling them of, of your greatness that meets their greatest need. Telling them of your mercy. And Father, it's in, it's in Jesus' holy name that we pray this morning. Amen. Well, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, let's, let's stand, let's sing together. Behold the Lamb.
Supper, we gather in one large circle around the outside of the room. Go ahead and make your way over there. I'll read to you the words of, of institution it's from Paul here. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is in the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we do this morning. As we come to this table this morning, I kind of want to come back to the, the bean analogy again. 
simply because it's, it's kind of a beautiful analogy. Sometimes I think in the Christian world, modernly, we tend to celebrate all the, the huge successes in ministry. Look how big this church is or how many people came to faith in this ministry or whatever it might be, massive things. And, and one of the things we're looking for in our lives, right, is to see God working even in little ways. And I kind of joked about it, but we have two little pods on there. I, I counted them. There's four actual beans in one and three in the other. There's seven. It's probably not going to end world hunger with the, the fruit of this plant. And, and yet there it is, being fruitful, growing. Not, not because of anything in and of itself, right? Sure, we tried to nourish it by giving it water, putting it in the, in the window where it can find sunlight, those, those means of grace, if you will. And, and yet, God's what's made this grow. God's what's made it fruitful. There's no magic make it happen, which is why the other one I, I couldn't make grow, despite giving it the same things. I, I, I mean, I, I say that so that you this morning come to this table and, and know that, yes, you are a sinner. You cannot make yourself holy you cannot produce these good works. And you don't have to even see massives of them. You don't need some huge ministry. You don't need to be the greatest person ever lived. But you're looking for the fruit that God is at work in you. That the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That you have been redeemed. That you are no longer enslaved to sin. But you're a servant of the living God. And so as we come to this table, do remember your sins. But remember this. Christ died for you. If your faith is in Christ, he has died for you, not because of anything you've done. He's done it in love. He's done it because you're his. He's done it because you've always been his. He comes and he rescues you. So rest in that. Be encouraged at the work God's doing in you. Nourish that. But, but rest in the fact that God does it. Christ redeems you in, in that way. Uh, for those of you that are, are with us today, we, we, we want you to know this, that this is for God's people. This is for those who know themselves to be sinners and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. If, if that's not you, we are so glad you're here. Keep coming, keep asking questions. You know, you can make fun of me even. Just keep coming, keep sitting under the word, keep participating in the service. Uh, we want you here, we really do. But we do ask that you not partake in the sacrament, because the Lord in his word asked that if it's not your faith, that you, that you not partake in the sacrament. Uh, for everyone else, though, you come to this. When it comes around, you, you take, you partake, you remember the, the glorious gospel we have believed. You, you rejoice in the fact that your sins are forgiven. And, and so we'll do that. Uh, use the, the words here in our, our bulletins. Let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. And the gifts of God are for the people of God. Come eat and drink with thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this gathering of your people. Thank you for even the desire to, to get up in this cold weather and to gather with other of your people to worship you today. We know that's not natural. Father, I thank you for all that you have done for us that you make us grow like the little bean, not because of anything within ourselves, but because of you. And we ask that our, our hearts would be encouraged as we partake of the sacrament this morning, that you would spiritually be present and nurture us. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen.